Hello, welcome to another edition of Backstage. My next guest is one of the most passionate people I think I've ever met. Whenever you're at the tour and you're feeling a bit flat, if Dr. Dave walked in the room after 10 minutes, you'd, you're ready to just about walk through a brick wall. Uh, he's got an amazing background. He was with the AIS uh, in Cycling Australia for over 20 years. Uh, he's a sports scientist. Uh, he also worked for the Philadelphia 76ers for four years. Uh, he was a director of performance research and development, and he's currently the professor of exercise science at the Australian Catholic University, and also the chief scientist and director of performance for Appearing Life in San Fran. Dr. Dave, uh, welcome, mate. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Uh, how are you holding up at the moment with this whole global pandemic? I'm doing good. I'm surprised that you're able to track me down. It's been a little bit since we've caught up. And when you reached out, I was, you know, bunkered into my uh, garage. And uh, right now we've had that really weird situation where we were on full lockdown and quarantined to the home. The whole city was down. The Bay Area was down. And then it opened up and everybody started feeling like, whew, we got through that. And then you know, the numbers of people dying started increasing. They got up to eight to 10 deaths an hour in wow. California, which is insanity. And then a whole number of counties in California, we're, we're locked down again. Um, are you keeping abreast to like developments with this vaccine and, and so forth? Because um, we're getting reports that sounds like they're pretty close with Ox Oxford University. They might be shipping it out in September or whatever, but no one really knows. And then you know, you hear Russia have got one and it's all ready to go, but they sort of skip the queue a bit. Do you know really much what's going on at the moment? No, I, I follow it um, because the, the clients that I, you know, am involved with now, um, they're, they're investors, they're VCs, and they're very tech savvy. And so you, you get to hear bits and pieces that's unofficial. And then you get to hear all the stuff that's on news, which is a little bit more like entertainment. Um, I follow a couple journals and try to keep up with some articles and have a couple medical doctors that I keep in touch with. Um, and the message that I'm feeling comfortable with is that it's going to take a while before a suitable vaccine is um, ready and available. And even when it is, it's going to be a while before it's available for all of us for it to roll out. And even when it is available, uh, it's not going to work for everybody in all cases. So um, I think I, I like to be an optimistic guy, but I think uh, as it pertains to sport and as it pertains for all of us that work around sport, um, I think it's going to be a, a different, the future is going to be different. Um, and even when that vaccine comes out, I think we're, we're looking at, you know, six months to a year or more versus like the next two to three months. Mm. Um, now, I, I briefly went over some of uh, the things you did at the, at the top of the show. Um, do you want to give listeners a, a bit of a overall background to what is it that you do? Because I think there's so much more to the title as, as sports scientist. You know, you're a bit of a mentor for a lot of athletes and and there's a lot of stuff that's in there that, that you do that that isn't in your title. Yeah, no, I could give you like the quick uh, rundown was um, I was a uh, collegiate cross-country skier and downhill skier and um, that was kind of paying for tuition. So it was a small liberal arts uh, college in, in Idaho and I actually, as part of that uh, study, I, um, I, I wasn't sure what, where I was going to go or what I was going to do. I knew I loved sport um, and my whole family was quite sporty. Um, I had a chance to go to Australia. This is as an undergrad. And there's a research station at, on Heron Island. And I thought studying in Australia for a semester would be really cool. But the only way to go is if you were a biology major. And so I, th that was my junior year and I declared biology as a major and I became more entrenched in, in research and the scientific process and collecting data. We were studying um, uh, ketodons, these little butterfly fish and sea turtles uh, out on Heron Island. And you know, I learned about 4X beer and I learned about <laughs> beautiful sunsets and we had a great research group. And I just fell in love with science. I just thought it was such a, an interesting way to go. Um, but I, I knew biology wasn't going to be my calling. I was I, I took a class in exercise physiology. That's where I got really excited about exercise physiology, how the human body uh, responds to exercise. And as an athlete, I found that super interesting. 
So I went and did a master's degree uh, right in, in exercise physiology, working with cross-country skiers. That led to uh, two years at the U.S. Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs. That's where I met uh, Charlie Walsh and some of the Australian track cyclists were coming over in those days. That's where I met Lance Armstrong. He was a junior in those days. Um, and so I started to become a lot more connected with, with cycling. Um, I had a chance to do my PhD at University of Wyoming, studying uh, different aspects of fatigue and how uh, hormones like testosterone and cortisol and catecholamines, how they change when you get tired. Uh, so I was really interested in persistent fatigue and altitude training. And um, a job came up at the Institute of Sport and a guy named Dick Telford said, they had a new coach named Heiko Salzvedel. I couldn't even say his name. And they were going to start a road program. And I could work with Neil Craig and Charlie Walsh and all these people I'd read about. And I'd heard of the AIS and that, you know, it was a legendary place even in the in the 90s. Um, so I went over and a lot of my work there was as a sports scientist, altitude, heat, uh, training programs, power monitoring, those kind of themes. Um, as the, I think after 2000, Neil Craig left, he wanted to go into footy. And so the job opened up to be the sports science coordinator for cycling Australia. And, um, uh, I was lucky enough to get that job. And then you're really networked with the high performance team with Michael Flynn and Kevin Tabata and, you know, Paul Brosnan and all, all those names kind of came into the fold. Um, Shane Bannon, you know, mm -hmm. larger than life, which is how you and I met, um, and so things were just swimming along normally there, you know, again, all high performance teams, like your question of, you know, what is it that you do from the very beginning, it's been about um, asking questions and questioning answers all around this, this concept of what can the human body do? Um, so that led to a headhunting group and we can get into this later, you know, with the Sixers, um, they, they had a new, a new show in town. It was a terrible team, the Sixers. They were going to change everything, new owners, new coach, everything was going to be new. And they wanted to bring an Australian approach, you know, a high performance team sport uh, approach to the NBA. Um, so I got to become one of the first kind of directors of performance in the, in the NBA. Um, and through that job, then, you know, you're looking at, at these, these professional athletes, um, which is, it's, it's got, we'll talk about it later. It's a little bit of a different game. Um, and that led to me meeting a very interesting venture capitalist who was tied in with Golden State Warriors doing a lot of really cool technology work for the US Olympic Committee. And he told me about a small startup company um, where he was trying to bring a high performance support model that's used in in sport, he was trying to bring it to these elite executives, the Apple, Google, Tesla, you know, all these, these guys who are under really heavy demands and they, they want to take care of their bodies and, and they can afford really good, good care. So that, uh, the question's always been the same. It's like for the time you have to invest, what should you be doing? Um, and how do you get your body to work for you in the best way possible? Um, it's obviously changed a lot from those early days. Like I remember, you know, talking to a few of the writers that, that went through that late nineties, early two thousand era. There was a lot of massive days on the bike, like you're talking three hundred K rides and just smashing themselves to get ready. That's obviously evolved a lot to modern um sports scientists. What are some of the biggest changes you saw in that in that time? Yeah, I think um, you know, early on um, there were, you know, to Australia's credit, there were there were programs that were being leaked from Europe. Um, so you could see how the Russians and particularly how the Germans um, and how other successful nations, you could see how they were training. You couldn't see the other things they might be doing, you know, and I'm saying that vaguely, <laughs> you know where that could go. Um, but you could see how they trained. And, and so the idea was, hey, if we know how much the Germans are training and we know how many medals they're winning, if we just trained more, then, then you know, odds are maybe you'd start to, to go faster. And so there was a there was a lot about Australia's just got to be harder and more focused than any other country in the world. And I think what shifted over the years was Australia has to be smarter. It has to be more clever. It has to think about timing it has to think about the type of athletes they invest in they've got to think about you know the gains that come from equipment and aerodynamics and so it's you know australia truly as the clever nation versus australia just as the badass beat the hell out of it do more than anyone else is willing to do um i do think that was a transition 
Do you feel that at times, particularly when you were at the AIS, that we become too obsessed with gold medals in Australia? Like it's all around the Olympics. And if you don't get a gold, well, the whole thing's been a failure. And sometimes, you know, as you know, in sport, shit happens. Uh, did yeah. you feel that, that that obsession put probably, you know, a little too much pressure on everyone there at times? It could have. And it's really fun to go back from it through the early archives of the Australian Institute of Sport. Greg Blood, if you ever get a chance to follow him on Twitter, he's like a, a historian. He was a librarian um, at, at the at Australian Institute of Sport for well over two decades. And um, he has been able to, you know, show me and others some of the the early documents uh, that were used when they were building up the Australian Institute of Sport. And a lot of them were not about gold medals. It's funny because everybody tells a story about Montreal and no gold medals and, you know, the nation's embarrassed and we need a center of excellence and the Australian Institute of Sport was born. Um, but when you talk to some of those early pioneers, they talked about things like a center of excellence and a, a pioneer for learning and a center point for um, idea exchanges and a landing pad, pad, pad for international experts. And I remember asking, talking to Professor Alan Hahn, I was like, wow, you guys are so visionary. You didn't just obsess over gold. It was all about being excellent and all about learning and all about being collaborative and putting Australia, which is so far away from the rest of the world, on the map. And Alan told me, he said, that that wasn't because we were that visionary. He goes, we just didn't think we could actually win much. <laughs> so we wanted to cover our bets and make sure that, um, you know, we, we were ticking other boxes as well. Um, but you're right, a lot of those kind of altruistic themes and those, those things that make your heart feel warm um, about the Institute of Sport, it, 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 the, the whole narrative changed over years and you you would have felt it as well you know win or go home gold is is winning and set you know silver is losing and there there were some definite shifts as well and the media propagated that and <clears throat> ministers for sport propagated that and you know probably directors from the institute of sport propagated that so it was a shift i think you're right um, was one of the biggest challenges when you're at the AOS, if you'd have like an idea, like thinking outside of the box, pushing that to go, well, let's just give it a, give it a crack rather than sort of, Hey, hang on. Is this tried and tested? Was that always a bit of a battle? It's, it's really interesting. You know, if you talk to some of those early pioneers at the Australian Institute of Sport, you know, and I have a lot of time for Alan Hahn and, and Dick Telford, um, Louise Burke, Craig Purdom, you know, Peter Fricker, there's a bunch of just real legendary pioneers uh, that a lot of us in the second wave kind of tip our hat to. And they were they were very entrepreneurial on how they would get funding. And, you know, whether it was from Kellogg's, from a cereal company, uh, whether it was, you know, um, through uh, university grants, whether it was through cooperative research centers, they, they had a knack of just getting resources. And so it would happen instead of the idea leading what resources you got, you'd look for opportunities to find resources, funding. Camps cost money, you know. Uh, mm -hmm. It costs money to feed athletes. It costs money for athletes to travel. So you need money. And coaches aren't going to give up their budgets, which are barely enough to cope. So what they, the research ideas and the real innovative projects, a lot of times they were born out of a scientist becoming very entrepreneurial on how they brought funding together. Then they would pay for camps and say, well, we're doing this camp. We'll need to take your blood before, during, and after to see how your blood responds while we're up at altitude. And so all of the, the competitors to Australia would probably have thought, wow, aren't those Australian Institute of Sports Scientists are so visionary and strategic because they're going after altitude training. But, but in fact, we could see there was funding for altitude training and then we would um, start to partner with the coaches to make it work, both from a scientific perspective on how could your understanding help you win, but also from a real pragmatic perspective of how do these dollars um, help the science but also help the athletes in the program. So, so it was. It wasn't like a think tank where you might picture in the military ten Einstein sitting around a table with a whiteboard saying, "Aha! I've got it. We should study this." 
um, and then going to try to get support for it. It was more like, hey, guys, come together. I just heard you could probably get thirty to $40,000 from Dairy Australia um, if we study calcium and high-intensity exercise. Um, how about if we work this into a camp? We talk about um, the commercial side of things. I reckon AIS helped sell a lot of boxes of Kellogg's Sustain. Yeah. Um, you know, if you had a cereal like that, bang, you, you on your on your way to getting a gold medal for sure. Yeah. Um, now you're talking about one of those camps. I remember there's a famous one in in 2012. I think it was. I come over and, and did some filming with you uh, with the women's camp. Do you want to give us the story of that and and what effect that had on the program? Yeah. So um, it's a, it was a really interesting story. I I, I think, and it was they were really fun camps. Um, what happened, which was really sad, you, you'd remember it, most of Australian cycling does, when Amy Gillett was killed and the whole women's national team was wiped out over when they were getting ready for the, the, the Turrigan tour over in Germany. And, you know, Australia is a small country. And when you have a car accident and, you know, one woman's dead and all the other women are wiped out, um, it really takes its toll. So. You might have remembered before that time, they were glory days, you know, uh, Sarah Kerrigan, first event, 2004, gold, you know, Anna Wilson going to World Cups with her, win, 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 number one mm. in the world. I mean, it was insane. You know, they were going one, two, three in the Commonwealth Games. It was like Australia was just a whole world ahead of a lot of the other competitors. So then you wipe the national team out and what happened is we kind of got, I think, too smart for our own good. We had a lot of lab data and Warren McDonald was the coach at the time. And we thought, you know, maybe the training camps we're doing are a bit too hard. Uh, maybe we should just do a VO2 max test in the lab. We could pick them by numbers. We know their body comp, their watts per kg, their VO2 max, you know. So we'll kind of just pick talented, you know, physiologically capable women and we'll name them to these teams and they'll go over to Europe. And it was weird. It was like they were fit, but they weren't fast. It was like they were they're fit, but they weren't ferocious. It was like almost um, sanitized. There was something off. And we started to realize that the way the women used to make the team was hard. It was really hard. And that that probably gave them a lot of confidence. So we were, we were talking about how could we work with, um, you know, how could we, we work in ways with these women to give them more confidence. And so uh, I had a neighbor who is in defense, who is a fighter pilot, and we started talking about selection camps for special forces. So I went up to two commando regiment, I went over and saw the SAS boys over in Perth, and I kind of saw some of their selection camps. I was like, you know, we could probably modify, use a lot of the same structure, but you know, girls don't need to crawl under barbed wire, carry a rucksack 40K. We don't need to do army drills to make them hard, um, which is where a lot of people go. What we can do is we'll keep it completely cy cycling and completely relevant to cycling. But what we'll do is we will put very specific challenges together and we will run it like a special forces selection course. And what we will do is we will deselect women partway through it, just like you would. We'll give them numbers. We'll tell them it's not personal. We'll make it really hard in really relevant ways. Um, and one of the one of the, the stars out of that early one of the early camps is Gracie Elvin. She was a mountain biker, so they weren't going to invite her to the camp. But a slot opened up, and we thought, you know, just for numbers, well, she's local. Just throw her in. And the harder it got, the better she got. And it wasn't like she was good in things that were esoteric or weird, like a VO2 max test or some stupid blood test or genetic test. She was good when, when we took them on long rides and there were you know hill challenges and time trials and criteriums with boys. And she just showed she was tough as nails. And so that's what the camp was all about, giving these women a chance to experience relevant challenges but we really did them up i mean you were there filming them we brought in, we brought in special forces boys and we made them we made them tough and relevant they could always quit they were voluntary camps so we we paid through for them through research funds um but uh it was a way for them to show selectors how good they were um simple question what is it that separates the really good athletes do you think to the ones that um a middle of the pack sort of to say yeah, I've got one for you that I don't think a lot of people talk about. 
and see what you think of this because you've been around a lot of elite athletes. Um, and, and I could give you an example in basketball for a minute to tell you. Um, and it's this, um, this concept of satisfaction um, that, that I'm, I'm satisfied like with my, my bank account, how much money I have there. I'm satisfied mm. with my body composition. For in the basketball, it's like I'm satisfied shooting, you know, 30% from the three-point line. And mm. I'm satisfied with the top three plays. And then you get people like Anna Wilson, like Anna Mears, you know, you, you get people like Matt Heyman, you get these people that are, you know, like Cadell, they're just not satisfied. In fact, second is still just pissing the crap out of them. They mm -hmm. really are just not satisfied. And when you find people whose satisfaction eludes their reality, um, they tend to be incredibly driven. So I don't know. I feel like there's something there. We call it competitiveness. We call it grit. We call it mental toughness. There's a bunch of names, but if you all had to boil it down, I think it's a great question. I, I think it's like some people are just satisfied really easy. <laughs> like, well, I'm fine, you know. <laughs> well, one, of the, one of the biggest docos this year and, and will be for the next decade is The Last Dance. Did that give you a bit more insight into like the mindset of like a Michael Jordan? And as you said, was never satisfied and would get use anything to get himself pissed off and battle ready, you know, for finals and things like that. Yeah, he'd even make – didn't you love it? Yeah, I, I got to watch it. And um, I wish I would have seen it before I started working in the NBA because, you know, there were some players that I got to work with and I thought, man, these guys are tricky. I mean, you know, you've been around all the guys I've been around and all the women I've been around that are elite athletes. And there's a lot of them that are very, um, they're hard to work with. They're, they're emotional. Um, they're, they have, a, they're accusatory in a lot of things. They, they're, they're, um, really pedantic and they're perfectionist and they're hard to be around at times. You're just like, dude, you got to chill out. Okay. Like just, I'm mm. sorry. We didn't bring that seat cover or I'm sorry that didn't work out like you want. And so you, you could see, how would you like to work with Dennis Rodman? You know? Yeah. Like, Holy cow. How good was he as an athlete and how tricky would it have been? You know, I've, I've met, you know, Steve Kerr and, nice guy, coach of Golden State Warriors. And how about just getting to a point in a practice where you full on punch Michael Jordan, you know, in the face. So, so everybody that, you know, thinks, oh, I want an elite team and I want them to be mild mannered and on time and respectful and easy for me to coach. I think what that uh, show, The Last Dance shows you is that, um, yeah, you're not, like I think Ian McKenzie told me once, you know, we're, we're not running tours for choir boys. You know, mm -hmm. these guys are alpha males and they're super competitive and everything you want out of them and love about them, you've got to put that on the, on the front foot. And then all of the things that frustrate you, you got to kind of put that on the back foot to see how to create environments that are the best for them to do what they're great at. Cause the people that are helping them, you know, we're, we might be a bit unique, but, they're really, they're the money winners. Is that the hardest thing with sports scientists is the fact that um, a lot of the things that you develop, you, you've got the variables of every athlete's different and every athlete would react differently to the, the things that or your research shows should work? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what you'll find with the really good uh, sports scientists and, um, you know, you've been around a lot of them, a lot of the PhD students we brought in to, to cycling, you, you know, you've been around Quaddy and, you know, Scott Gardner and, you know, Laura Garvican, Tammy Ebert, Paolo Minespa, Eric Hackinson, Jason Bartram, like Nick Flagger, they're good thinkers, really, really good thinkers. Um, and they are guided and influenced by research data, which keeps them, I think, honest um, and realistic. But at the same time, they know how to um, connect with the athlete when they need it. Um, so they're not, you know, research says your warm up has to be 10 minutes. They can say, Hey, 
you know, research has shown you can get a good warm up in 10 minutes. I can tell you, see, you want to go longer. Let's just make sure we don't overdo it. I'm not saying you're wrong. Uh, I'm just saying that know that you've covered your base in 10 and we can go from there. So yeah, the, the, it's one thing to know what to say, and then it's another to know when to say it and how to say it. And what's really sad, I guess, is, and you've probably seen it, there's really smart people that know so much and their timing and the, the, the manner within which they explain something is irritating and mm. it doesn't feel like you want to connect with it. Um, and you would have known I think you ran into the late, you know, Aldo Sassi, what a great man. And he just had a wonderful way of not just knowing what to say, but his timing and the way he said it, you could just see the athletes just connect with him and warm to him and, and buy in big time. So yeah, keeping that connection between what the research says and then the individual nature of high performance sport is a, it's a real challenge. Before we get to the um, 76ers and how that all came about, um, looking back at your time at the AAS, what are you most proud of, do you think? Mm, I, the, the people that we just named. I think um, there there was a real sense, especially in cycling. I don't know if they had it as, as much in in swimming or if they had it as much as in track and field or you know in the soccer team. But um, one thing that cycling did incredibly well that uh, you know i'll always remember and i always i keep it in you know in my back pocket whenever i'm doing high performance work is this idea of being a um you kind of are a, a custodian to the job that there were people that had it before you and there'll be people that have it after you and so it's yours for this time being and um and so what you need to do while you do your job is you need to start grooming and connecting and, and searching for the next people that are going to take your job or grow your job. And I think that Cycling Australia did that really well. And what I'm probably most proud of is that um, the effort that we took, you know, to find each and every one of those PhD students, we didn't take any one of them for granted. All of them were rigorously e evaluated and um and discussed and and then and mentored and brought into the program with the thought that you're special, you're going to do great things, and um, you know when you start getting really good, people like me, people like Neil Craig, like we, people will move out to give you space to breathe and grow. And in elite sport, then what you what you get is you get um, this kind of the 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 sequence of care. It, it it keeps growing. You get legacy and you get, you know, decade to decade to decade growth. So it feels a lot more like a, like a family grown company, you know, versus what happens in elite sport a lot is just, you know, you're fired, you're fired, you're fired. We start mm -hmm. over. You're fired, you're fired, you're fired. We start over. And so you don't get any legacy and everyone's got their idea. And then someone else has got their idea. And um, it, it's all good at the beginning, but then people get burned out and tired. And when you, when you have the legacy, the old guys like me now, you sit around the campfire and you tell the young blokes the stories about you know what what happened and how good they got it now and where they're going to take it. So yeah, tell me about the the journey to the seventy sixes because um, yeah, yeah it's, pre it's pretty amazing story how it all, all came about. Yeah, it was it was interesting. So um, this I went to the. Sixers in 2015, so right before Rio de Janeiro, and um, I had um, been watching that the AIS. You know, they they take different directions, and you get new leadership up at the board. You know, with John Wiley starting to to make some uh, some moves on how he saw the Institute of Sport, how it was going to be. Um, some of the research funds that we had used were not available for, for projects as we kind of knew them. Um, we had a lot of growth coming up under cycling and I was uh, finding myself really interested in, in kind of innovative and entrepreneurial projects. Like I'd done that skeleton program. I really found that interesting. We'd done a talent ID project in cycling. I found that really interesting. Um, and I just started this combat center and it was more engagement with the special forces community and. I was really, you know, liking that, but I could tell that, you know, the only way for some of the people that I was working with, you know, to grow would be to get on board with another project. Um, and so I wasn't like looking hard. 
Um, but a headhunting group, you know, and this happens you, when you're at the Institute of Sport, everyone worldwide thinks Australian sports scientists are amazing. And I've, I've said at conferences, you know, people ask, why are Australian sports scientists so amazing? And I answer often that they're amazing because you think they're amazing. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> a good start. Like you all think we're amazing. So that's better than coming from America where you think that you can't trust them. So, um, so I had this headhunting group and they said, there's an NBA team. It's got these very wealthy owners, um, you know, both of them billionaires with a bigger group, including Will Smith. Um, these guys want to do it all. They, they want to, they got a new coach, Brett Brown. His wife's Australian. He's coached the Olympic team. They have a new general manager. He's very smart. NBA out of Stanford. He's worked with Daryl Morey and the Houston Rockets. He's a brainiac. He's super smart, super nice guy, very innovative with his thinking. Um, and you could have a very healthy budget. We're going to build a new building. We're going to bring in all these superstars. And you could build the team that supports the team. And you can pretty much do whatever you need to do. And so it was kind of like, I kind of think I'm ready for that, you know, like instead of, mm -hmm writing a grant for $5,000 from the Australian <laughs> Commission. It was like, this would really, really be exciting, you know? So I talked to my wife. My boys were just going into high school. And um, we'd always thought, because I'm from obviously from the U.S., my wife's from the U.S., and although we'd spent 21 years in Australia, our, our boys, uh, at, you know, born and raised in Australia, they have cousins from the U.S., and they always thought it'd be fun to do a year or two in a U.S. school. So I was going to come and work. My contract was structured. So after two years, I could let the AIS kind of settle down a little bit. And I would go work in the NBA for two years. I'd build the team and then I'd come back, you know, to, to the AIS with all these new ideas. Um, at that time, um, it was there, you know, two years later, the AIS still had a lot of, you know, things Matt Favier actually was just leaving. People I knew in higher places were leaving. So I just did not know the direction. I didn't know where it was going. So I decided to stay and you know cut my ties with the AIS um, and stay for another two years and kind of finish out this four-year build and then reassess um, from there. So I kind of had to jump. I was I was tethered, you know, to the plane and having fun, knowing I had a backup job, which is a great way to work in the MBA. But after two years, then I was like, okay, I've jumped, you know, I got, I got, a, I got one parachute. I got one pull. I got to make, I got to make this work. So that's how it started. And then how's, how's that? Like my, the first major draft pick after I came in after Joel Embiid um, was Ben Simmons. I, I was at camps at the AIS when Ben Simmons was there. I couldn't believe it, you know, and Ben Simmons brother, went to Dara Mullen, which is where my boys went to school. And Ben was at the daycare center at the AIS and his dad played basketball and coached at St. Eddie's and uh, it was unbelievable. Yeah. So what, what was your um, first impressions like um, at the 76ers? Because obviously basketball is huge back here. Um, oh, yeah. Is it just, was it everything that you thought it was going to be? Well, no, in some ways it's, it's really, um, in some ways it seems really, awkward and and not very thoughtful and and in other ways um it's very sophisticated um so it, it's very tribal in nature and you've been around team sport every team has its own its own culture and its own tribe and um, the sixers were in this kind of rebuild the process which was this very elaborate rebuild there's actually a, a book um, about it that's out called Tanking to the Top. And there's some really interesting perspectives on, on what Sam was trying to do. He was really interested in patiently pursuing excellence. So his theme to me and his theme to all of us was people can rush at, because the fans don't give you much time. Two losing years and a lot of people get fired. And it was mm -hmm. like, you could just be patient you could build a team in a, a very thoughtful way and you can get a lot of, of, of very uh, interesting draft picks and you can build up a real superpower in the NBA. So from that idea, it was very sophisticated and the analysts that Sam worked with were very smart, very good computer scientists, very good analysts, uh, people that could get a job you know, with Goldman Sachs or any big finance firm, like they can pay decent salaries so they get very top-notch 
you know, analysts that have great software and good, good insights. But then there'd be other things that you just look at and think, you've got to be kidding me. You know, uh, I remember Craig Bellamy coming over and, you know, we show a lot of people around um, and they'd be like, how is that how you warm up for a game? Is that how you debrief? Is that how they're fed? Is that, you know, and it would seem like in a very structured, organized Australian um, footy team, you might see things that seem uh, more superior, more scientific and more organized, um, even with the monitoring and even with, with just how formulaic some things become. So it was both in certain things, you know, when it comes to media and broadcasting and, oh my God, you know, in your area, you've seen it. They're phenomenal, aren't they? Yeah. The, the access that they get in the, in the locker rooms and that, I mean, that's unheard of. Oh. You, know, you, you might get one or two radio guys in, in the AFL rooms or a roaming Brian or whatever, but not to the level that, and it's just the expectation, like this is part of your job. Yeah. Yeah. No, they sell it hard. They'll do one interview with you, stuff come out on, there's tweets that come out, Instagram stuff that comes out. There'll be a YouTube clip that comes out. There'll be a couple, you know, ESPN stories with some quotes that come out. Um, everything is very thoughtful and strategic. They have media directors. Um, and so they work with their um, video team. What you did for Green Edge, they'd have a staff of like, you know, six to eight people. And that's full time, just cutting, filming, talking, interviewing, and just packaging up all the content that comes from these professional teams. So in some of those areas, they're, they're just amazing. Um, how much does money affect the mindset of a lot of these athletes? Because, you know, some of the players, mm. the contracts are eye-watering. Um, you're talking yeah. about Ben Simmons. I mean, he's cut one of the biggest – well, it is the biggest uh, Aussie athlete deal in the history of, of sport. Um, yeah. How does that affect the mindset? Does that add more pressure? Or are these guys just is what it is? Because, you know, there's been documentaries about – um, you know, the associated families all wanting a slice of the pie and everyone comes out of the woodwork. How, how do a lot of these athletes react to these big contracts? Yeah, well, they they definitely park in, in a different place than I park. So the, the Ferraris and all of the, the, those cars go in one area and, um, and then uh, the, the staff go in, in another area. But when you're Doing the day job, I don't think I feel the difference. I wouldn't feel the difference, you know, from, you know, the professionalism that you would see, you know, from a, a Matthew um, Heyman, you know, um, you know, or a Michael Matthews. They're, they're, they're focused and organized and disciplined. And you don't feel the money there at all. Where you probably feel the money is that um, – it's where sport becomes entertainment and entertainment becomes uh, cash flow. So mm. you really feel it like in the Olympics, it's about, is it a world record? Is it a personal best? Is it, an, is it meeting an international standard? And so it's this idea of performance excellence really reigns supreme. But a lot of the decisions, you know, that get made when you're working in uh, professional sport, these guys are like small businesses that are making $20 million a year. You imagine a business making $20 million a year. That's profit. That's all expenses covered. That's your profit. So the agents and the financial advisors um, and those that are tied into that business, which is that player, like, like Ben or like Joel or whoever they are, um, they they can't just make a decision based on performance. It has to be a decision based on on the career and the earning potential and the the business that this guy is running. And so you'll feel that you know you can you can feel that there there are times where you know it might be good for a player not to overdo it with a knee that's a little off. But you know if if it's a nationally televised game and they've got new shoes on their feet and you know that then you've got to you've got to play that card as well that's what's paying the bills so you feel that a little bit more i'm sure they feel it in pro sport in australia as well but i think you you really feel it the other thing that happens is um when they're super super popular athletes you know everybody wants to um get a piece of them so you'll see like as i'm talking to you i'm not gonna i don't say much at all I don't say really anything at all about the athletes that I worked with. And that's just out of respect for who they are and what their brand is. You never know if you might be saying something that is 
giving for journalists that are going to follow this Dan Jones podcast because someone who used to work at the Sixers might be saying something juicy right before the playoffs and we can pick this up and run a story and they could yeah you got to be you got to be particularly careful when you're working around them and that's very different than when you're working around Olympic athletes you're actually trying to showcase them you're like let me help you somebody wanted to know what's Cadell Evans like you know I said some great things you're you're trying to help Mm. them get publicity whereas uh in the nba you let the pros deal with the the publicity do you find because obviously even with my job it was all about trust and forming relationships and and just getting them to know that okay like what you said then you're not going to say anything that's going to come out and be detrimental to their brand is it hard to win that trust um after a period of time are they a lot more guarded because of how how big a superstars these guys are yeah, no, trust is huge. And um, I think Australia was really good for me because I think that um, we were, as support staff, I think it's just the Australian way, is um, if you're going to work with a team, you could have done your job a bunch of different ways, Dan, you know, but you just were, you were all in. Like, you were all in. It was like your whole life. You were as committed to the team as the riders were to the team. And you saw that. And, you know, we know some of the other staff, Shane's all in, Kevin's all in, Quadi's all in, like they're all in. Um, and it's not about big noting yourself because if you do, whether it's Australian tall poppy, whatever, it's just not cool. You just don't do it. So if you go to a conference and you get a chance to talk about what you did with, you know, a, a team that won something, uh, you find yourself talking about the science and talking um about your colleagues and talking about the opportunities and it has a little bit more of a of a humble uh, tone to it and i think that helps you build trust once you know that you're there to help the player i I did an interview once when i first got to philly and it was a radio interview and the guy said so how would you how would you define your job and i said i would basically define my job right now as the head helper we're here to help these people and i'm the head helper so um that's basically the job and once they hear you say that on radio and if you walk the walk don't just talk the talk and you're there for them if they get hurt and they wake up from a surgery and you you are there and you care and you talk to their parents and you talk to their agent and you don't let the team bully you around too much you say always remember you know first and foremost it's the health and well-being of this player and then their performance capabilities now but in the long run as well so let's do what's right for them um if you can do that consistently then they start they should trust you because you're trustworthy mm. um and you're a bloody good bloke dave so that should go <laughs> a long way um now i i actually was fortunate enough to come over and see you and the facilities at the time in 2015 which were yeah. the temporary ones um what what were the, uh, the the brand new facilities like? What were some of the things that you implemented there? Oh, uh, you would have you would have loved it because those mean shots you were taking for the, in the first facility. <laughs> I couldn't <laughs> believe how hard it was. The rings are so stiff. <laughs> Every shot, the ball just zinged off. I thought, nah, yeah, never, never would have made the NBA. All in those stiff rings. All in <laughs> yeah. Well, when what we were doing, the first place that the Sixers were at, um, you know, they're probably saving some money. They didn't have a, a facility. The college scene had much better facilities and some of the other teams had much better facilities. But what the um, ownership supported building was uh, one of the biggest footprints in the NBA. And it, it's a, a really cool facility. It's got natural light. It's got a beautifully sprung floor. It's got two basketball courts side by side. And what they let me do was we instrumented it. So every shot you take uh, in the facility can be tracked. We, we, they know where it came from and they know how close to the center of the basket it actually was when it went in, or if you missed how far off you missed. It knows the arc of the shot. You can look at the release point. You can wow. track all the players as they move up and down the court. Um, there's um, you know, we, we copied a lot of stuff, you know, from the Australian Institute of Sport. If you see the recovery center um, at the Sixers facility, they have a great sports scientist um, that helped uh, work with, with me. We brought over Shona Holson, who's formerly, you know, worked, helped the, a lot of the cyclists out. Um, she came over and it's like a, a smaller version that, that suits 15 players. 
of a recovery sim that looks a lot like the the um, the AIS. There, the gym is is open and instrumented. Um, we were able to just put in a lot of surveillance tech, but not make it look all geeky and sciency. Philly's hard, you know. It's rocky. Mm. It's like you know carrying rocks and running in the mud. So you had to embrace the rough, tough nature of Philadelphia. But hidden in the corners was sophisticated technology for filming and tracking and evaluating where the players were at and how close were they to you know physical standards that would be deemed important for very high level um, play. So the new facility is wonderful. Really cool. How do you track what effect that then has on performance? Um, like, how can you say in a, in a graph or data, hey, these new facilities have resulted in this? Yeah, so there's a, there's a couple different ways. Um, so the basketball games are a lot like flipping a coin. So if you have an evenly balanced coin, it's like having two teams that are really well matched up. And so if you just flip that coin um, 10 times, and say how many times do we get heads and how many times do we get tails. Um, and if it's 50-50, that means it's a tie game and you go to overtime. And that, that the probability is about the odds of the shot falling. Every location on the court has a probability that if, if a certain player shoots from that spot, um, there's, there's odds of whether that shot will go in. If it's a contested shot, the odds go down. If it's uncontested, the odds go up. And so what you do is um, you play a whole number of different games. Um, and one, one game is, is a team running plays that allows them to take really good shots? And then conversely, are they running a defense that prevents the other team from taking really good shots? Um, and so you can have one win there just by uh, executing your game plan and saying, um, we took good shots, they took poor shots. And that's a game under the game of who won. So you can mm. lose the game, but still play a decent game. The other games that are played are, um, from a fitness perspective, you can look at how people move in practices and you can organize your practices so they replicate the demands of the game. So if you can get a team to move very similar to the demands of the game and they can do that um, more than four days a week, which is about the most you'd play in the NBA, sometimes five with double headers, but it's usually three to four games a week. Um, then you can start to tell the coaches and the players that look, um, we've had four weeks of practice that we've ramped up to and the nature of those practices are structured so that your court transitions happen on the same cadence and the, the breaks mm -hmm. uh, combined with the sprints and the defense and the offense, the physical demands of the direction change and accelerations and the jumps and the rebounds and the fighting. It's game specific and you're handling more than we'd ever ask you to handle in a game. And you can do that four days a week and you can do that for a month and you don't feel overly fatigued and you don't feel overly beat up and you don't have uh, defeat fatigue displaying itself, you know, in the game where you start to have kind of half-assed defense. So, so the idea is it's a, it's a confidence boost for the coaches. Your team is now fit enough to play and it's a confidence boost for the players as well, especially when they're rehabbing from injury. Um, and most teams adopt a similar philosophy or is this something unique more to Philly? I, um, I would think that there's, uh, there's a lot of Australians over there now. When I came over, you know, uh, Troy Flanagan got picked up with the Bucks, and uh, Johan Billsborough was picked up with the Celtics and did some really good work there. He's now working with the, with the Patriots. Um, you had um, uh, – there was a, a, a group, uh, uh, Dave – Taylor and uh, Dean Little, they came over and worked with the Grizzlies and were doing some really good work. Um, uh, there was um, uh, Lachlan Pinfold came over and worked with Golden State Warriors. So I was like, there was an Australian wave that crashed over the NBA with ideas that we'd all kind of uh, picked up through our time in Australian uh, sport. And I think you started to see a lot of people becoming more um, – more open for monitoring athletes and you started to hear words like we'd say things like load management, just like it's no big deal. Is it load management, which is basically mm. structured training, preparing for a game, but it became a really big deal. Journalists over here were like, you know, we now have this thing called load management. You know, players are mm. being kept out because of the load management. Scientists have gone crazy. 
where, as you know, like load management is just a term that people yeah. pick up on. We, we just thought of it as structured training, just good old fashioned logical training. Don't, don't, don't overdo it or you'll get hurt and don't underdo it or you're not fit enough. So we, we structure the training thoughtfully so that you're fit when it matters. And I thought it was interesting over here. That was deemed load management, you know? Oh my God, the scientists are going crazy, you know, with their technology. Um, so I think that it might've been a little bit new early on, but there's been great basketball coaches in the NBA forever. Bright, smart, intuitive, you know, great coaches that have an amazing feel for the game. There's been great athletic trainers, you know, great strength conditioning coaches. Um, I just think we kind of brought some newness of how the technology and the science kind of blends with the tradition. How exciting was it um, to see that journey that the Sixers went on from like a, a going through a rebuild to starting playing some good basketball and, and being talked about as a, as a potential contender? Yeah, yeah. No, it's um, – I've never felt – like I've been on grand tours and you know how, what it's like when a tour team starts to unravel early on. You're not even in your second week, and, and mm. you're like guys can barely walk. We've had two crashes. I've got one guy who's crying. You know, it's like you you, you kind of know when it's not going well. Um, man, when you lose, you know, like over two weeks, you can you can lose like eight to ten games in a row. You know, yeah. and it's just devastating. It's really hard. Coach Brown was amazing. You know, he really focused on on process and procedures and execution and and the strategy and the player development. Those were really they had to be your themes early on. Otherwise, you'd lose the locker room. And much has been written about him and how amazing he was with what he did. But when they started winning, you know, um, when Joel came back and he was good, and when Simmons came back and he was good. You know, for me, it was hard. I didn't know how good these players were going to be because I just saw them as injured athletes working to come back. But man, when you see the crowd up on their feet and you see how good some of these guys actually are, and then you see like two, three, four games in a row, and then you know you're you're barely winning you know, ten games in a season out of eighty-two, um, and it goes to winning over fifty games, and you're just like, it's super exciting. It's fun being around winners, isn't it? Oh yeah, and Joel went to the Tour de France. Uh, when was that? A couple of years ago. Um, yeah. Is it true that the guys got to see All for One in the yeah. end? So what happened is when you when All for One came out, I thought it was magical. So I showed it to a couple of coaches. So a group of the coaches watched it. We never got it as like a sit down showing for all of the players. And you know, some of the players would probably not even really know much about the Tour de France at, at all. Uh, Joel is a sport buff. You can read about it. He is, you know, he loves his soccer. He's just really clever and he knows a lot about, you'd love talking to him because he just knows so much about so many sports. And so he, you know, he, he grew up from the French speaking region of Cameroon. He's followed the Tour de France. He knows a lot of the, of the riders' names. He knows the tactics, you know. Um, he plays like road cycling, uh, you know, video games. So uh, there was a chance when he was going over, you know, to see a stage at the Tour de France. And I, I can't remember now whether it was his agent. I think he expressed interest. And I said, um, I, I can see whether they could at least get you, you know, a pass. We'll call up Shane Bannon and Matt White and, um, and Quadi. And we'll see if they can get you in close at the champs de Musée stage. Um, be really fun for you. And he, he said he'd really like it. So um, we set it up and I remember I got text messages back. I, I don't think Shane Bannon's ever seen a seven foot male in his life. And Whitey said, <laughs> Whitey said he barely fit in the car, but you know, seven foot's a big, he's a big man. He's uh, you know, he doesn't look like it cause he's super well proportioned, but that's a, it's a big human being. Uh, but he loved it. He loved it. So yeah, it was pretty exciting. Um, looking back at your time at the 76ers, you're proud of what you achieved uh, and with yeah. what impact you had on those new facilities in particular? Yeah, no, I think um, while I was there, we hired some really good staff. Um, I think um, while we were there, um, we set up a really nice narrative, a really uh, nice story. And I think the risk would have been me coming in and being, you know, um, the science experiment. And I, I think uh, I'm really happy 
the way we built in some succession planning. A lot of the people that you know I hired while I was there are still there. And um, I think the way we layered in the technology, um, we did it in a way that uh, suited the needs of the ownership group. Um, and it wasn't overly um, uh, intrusive for the coaches. And we spent a lot of time with the athletes saying, if you don't want to wear this, you don't have to, and we're here for you. And, um, you know, how we kind of sold it. I thought those nuances, um, yeah, I'm, I'm really, really proud of. And then I always feel like you, you, you know, for me to leave a team and not to hate everybody is a good thing. There's a lot of relationships that break down in elite sport where, People just have differences of opinion and just like rock and roll bands, they all break up. And uh, one thing I always really liked from Cycling Australia is even though some people would move on to other things, they, there was still a camaraderie there. Um, there was still a fraternity there that you felt um, part of. And I still talk to you know people within the Sixers and you know they'll kick off on Monday against the Celtics and you know when they play, I, I want them to win and I want I want Joel to have a great game and I want the the, the players, you know, that were with the Sixers that have moved on to other teams. I love seeing them have a great career and I love seeing them uh, play really good basketball. Um, what do you think, uh, just lastly on the NBA, how the how the bubble situation's going? How do you think the NBA's handled the whole COVID um, pandemic? I, I think what you can see within the NBA is um, what happens when you can pay good salaries and you can um, – you know, pick and work with really expensive but very good people because um, uh, a lot of sports just can't do what they just can't do. Financially, they could not do what the um, NBA did. Um, but from all accounts, from what I hear in the press and from the little bits and pieces I hear, you know, from people on the inside, it's, it's just really impressive. They took it serious and it's a value proposition. They're either going to do something that keeps COVID out and they're going to hit it in a very, very vigorous way. And they're going to televise these games and the fans are going to love the basketball and love the sound and love the look. And they're going to make a lot of money out of the television broadcasting rights, or they're not going to get it right. And there's nothing. And a lot of people are going to lose a lot of potential money. So I think what they did was good. Um, but part of it is because of who they are. It's a it's a very rich, very well connected league. Um, what sort of long term effects do you reckon COVID's going to have on on these sporting codes? Because obviously the financial side of things have, have taken a fair bit of a hit. Will they have to reevaluate? Hang on, we can't pay the salaries that we used to. Will there be a bit of a, a restock take on on the whole organisation? Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. I have a feeling. I have a feeling that the rich will get richer um, because they'll have the, the means and the resourcing and the connections with television and the fan base that they'll be able to do things to keep the sport going. And I think the poor will get poorer. I think that the, the, you know, the, the, the teams and the leagues that are just barely hanging in there. Um, you and I have talked about it a lot. Like cycling is going to be going through a hard time because, you know, um, even on good years, it's hard to get those really juicy sponsors and it's hard to pay the cyclists what they're worth. And it's hard. It's, it's hard. So these sports that are right on the line of being profitable, I think they could get hit pretty hard. Um, and you might see the sports that that would be a time for opportunists to come in and think of new ways of packaging up the sport or revamping the league to try to make it safe for the athletes. Um, but still satisfying for the fans. But the big sports, I think they have a lot of money. I, I think it, it, it will change, um, but you'll see solutions that the fans enjoy because they're just going to, they're just, people are just, just going to keep on trying until they get it right. And I think for the first try, I think the NBA, I find myself, I know it's fake fan noise. I know that, you know, and, you know, everyone's doing their little things with the, um, virtual backgrounds on the screen. And I know that, but I still look up and they're learning how to pan in on people and the commentators are learning how to make it more colorful. And everybody's just trying to adapt. Humans are amazingly uh, adaptable, but it's definitely for a long time now, I don't think we're going to see it, it the way it was. I think, you know, things are changing. 
What about the uh, the future for you, Dave? Um, your current role now um, is similar but different. Um, what, what are you hoping to achieve um, in this next chapter? Yeah, so, you know, still very passionate and very um, interested in how the, the human body works. And so in the role I'm in right now, I get to work with some, you know, very, um, they're, they're very elite uh, investors, very elite CEOs. Um, they're involved in some, you know, big decision making, you know, here in Silicon Valley, which affects, you know, the US and the world. Um, and they're unique individuals that want to be high performers. Um, and so this idea of the company I'm working with now, Appear on Life, it's about bringing this high performance support um, model uh, into individuals who have a different type of stress in their life. They have to make really important decisions. They have to lead really big teams. They have to use their creativity with their intellect and try to make really good decisions um, at a very fast pace. Um, and like elite sport, it's, it's very, very competitive. And so the idea of uh, trying to bring teams of people together to help individuals with their health, I really like I think it's it's a it's a really fun and exciting pursuit right now, especially how it engages with all the wearable technologies that are coming out. Apple's coming out with a new you know watch. Garmin has some new tech. There's all kinds of interesting glucose monitoring. There's sleep monitoring with the Aura rings, and so a lot of people are like, how do you use this technology, and how do you use a support team to really make a difference for your overall health and health span and ability to perform at a super high level. So I, I like thinking about this. It's making me look at some very common themes for, from a different perspective. I do in my role with Australia Catholic University, uh, there's a lot of ex-Australian Institute of Sport scientists there. Um, you know, Louise Burke is a living legend and she's down there and her husband, John Hawley, is just a superstar, and Shona's is there as well, and Stu Cormack and Dave Opar. They just have, you know, Australia Catholic University has just attracted an all-star cast of, of, of scientists that are interested in sport. And so they let me scratch that itch on sport-related themes. I do think there's some really fun stuff to do in team sport. Um, and so, you know, I think I've got a really nice blend right now of trying to make sure I leave the door open for unique opportunities uh, to, to consult and work with people, especially in high performance sport in Australia. Uh, but I also am really enjoying the networking over here and just these really, you know, it is with elite athletes. It's the same with elite businessmen. You think mm -hmm. that they're going to be arrogant and rude and, you know, hard. And, but the ones that I'm meeting are, they're just incredible human beings. They're just, smart and connected and passionate and intuitive and enthusiastic and curious. Um, and they're really fun people to be around. So as long as we're around good people and I'm doing some high performance themes um, and I don't get COVID, I'm happy. <laughs> well, it's been a bloody fascinating chat, mate. I, I always love uh, the times that we had uh, over the years and and just uh, talking about general life and things like that. But always want to leave uh, listeners with um, what are some of the key things that you've learned in your uh, journey, Dave, that you can pass on if it's an athlete, if it's someone in everyday life, keys to uh, mm. success, mate, and, and getting the most out of yourself. Now, I think, um, you know, Job's probably said it in the most popular way, but um, do stuff that you love and surround yourself with great people. And if you're around people that you don't think are great and um, don't be confused with someone that doesn't agree with you as someone you shouldn't like, because you can have people that don't agree with you that are just great people and they just don't agree, agree with you and make it stronger, make you stronger. But if you, if you love the topics and the projects you're doing and you got great people around you, um, then you just need to make sure you find a little bit of balance to keep yourself um, same because even even in a chocolate shop you know it's all good you can eat too much chocolate and get sick so you try to find a little bit of balance you get great people around you and you keep going after projects that you love um and don't get too bummed out when bad things happen because 
you know, sun, sun usually comes up tomorrow and you get to try again. So I'd say probably, you know, those two things in particular, love what you're doing and, and try to be around great people. Well, that's a great way to finish, mate. Great message there. And uh, as I said, it's been great catching up and, and you're no doubt going to be a huge success in uh, this next chapter, mate. So I wish you all the best and, and definitely don't get COVID. Stay safe, Hi, Mark. Wash yeah. your mitts. <laughs> <laughs> now and we'll have to, uh, next time I find a court that's open, we'll get you over and work on that um, work on that layup of yours. Yeah, yeah. I've uh, started playing basketball here in Geelong, mate. And uh, yeah, let's just say I've got a, I've got a long way to go, particularly with the fitness. So, so I might need to you might need to write up a program for me. You, you got to finish finish for me with with two questions. Who's your pick for the NBA playoffs? Oh yeah, yeah, uh, right. And are you a Sixers fan? <laughs> so I guess Seventy Sixers are going to win it, and Embiid uh, going to be MVP. I would. I, I'd love that one. I, if if that happens, we'll get on a Zoom call. And we'll have a beer together. Yeah, definitely, mate. Um, but yeah, now, as I said, awesome chat, and uh, I'm sure the listeners will get a fair bit out of that one. So fantastic now, to speak to you again, Dave. Great to catch up, Dan. Always good to talk to you. See you, mate. All right. Bye-bye.